the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance show. In this episode, I speak to neuroscientist Dr. Irina O'Brien. Irina founded the Neuroscience School because she was dismayed by the hype around everything brain-related these days, where we see the word neuro used for everything, and much of it is nothing more than marketing. As such, many make questionable claims that have only a tenuous relationship to the research, and often it's taken out of context or blown completely out of proportion. In this episode, we unpack some of these neuroscience myths by covering what the research actually says. We cover a lot of ground talking about the myth of multitasking, how to set appropriate goals, motivation, sleep, diet, and much more. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Here is my first question for you, Irina. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Making your brain work for you. To me, that's what it means. Because that's the thing that occupies most of our time, right? So it makes perfect sense that that would be a really good place to start. I mean, your brain is involved in everything. So if you can make it work for you, um, you're ahead. I like your miles ahead. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So that, that's really um, nice segue into what we said we were gonna talk about because we were gonna go through, which I'm really excited, we're gonna go through 10 kind of aspects of neuroscience or the brain and how that applies to everyday life. But maybe before we get to that, one thing we said we would just mention, which I think is important, is that you know, when you see neuroscientific discovery, especially about the brain, being presented in kind of the, the media, what tends to happen oftentimes is they overstate the claims, right? So they, they'll take something and they'll just blow it completely out of proportion. And people are reading this and thinking, wow, that's pretty amazing. But if you go back and you look at the actual research, it's not to the degree that it's being presented. So there's a lot of misinformation out there, I believe, or at least the way that I see it, you know, especially in perpetrated mainly by mainstream media. What is your sense of that? Does, does, does that resonate with you? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of my goals is to, is to correct that misinformation. But the, the reason for the, for the misinformation, I mean, there, there are a few reasons. One of them is that they don't differentiate often between the types of studies. So correlational studies, you can only establish a relationship, meaning that when one thing moves, right, when one, uh, yeah, when one thing moves, then the other thing moves. So correlation, so it doesn't mean that one causes the other. It could be that the second thing caused the first thing, or they're both caused by something else. And how you, and how you can know whether it's correlational for mainstream media when they, you, you, we use words, because even in, in, uh, 
in science, we use words like predict. Predict sounds like it's causation, and it's not. All it means is that from one stimulus, you can predict, you can predict the, uh, the outcome. That's mm -hmm. all it means. It means that, that they move together in the same direction or in opposite directions. So that's all it means. Relationship is another one. Association is another word. And so the only, um, the only kinds of studies where you can establish causation, meaning that one thing caused another thing, is through randomized control trials, right? And that's where you have two or more groups. In uh, one group is often, it, well, usually, I mean, there's always a control group where, where, where you don't make any changes. And then the experimental group, you have them do something different and then you compare the results between the two groups and that way you can establish causation. Uh, and the other thing too, that what media does is it'll take one study and then magnify it. But one study doesn't really mean anything because it could be an outlier, right? So it, it should be based on a program of research. So, for example, a few years ago, or was it even last year, do, uh, do you remember when there was this research that came out that young people are developing horns in the back of their neck from, from looking down on, uh, well, that was just one study, and it was, it was debunked. And it turns out that one of the authors of the study, I think, was a therapeutic pillow uh, salesman or manufacturer. Yeah. <laughs> So you really have to look at a program of research. Yeah, so replicate, like the, the, the ability to replicate what you've suggested is important, right? Across different, you know, if you take people all over the world and they're doing the same research and they're coming to the same conclusion, then we can draw something from that, right? And not just one study in of itself and saying, okay, well, that, that's, that's exactly how it's going down. Uh, exactly. And then the other way, too, is that every time you do a research study, it always, you always have questions after that. So, so ideas for further research that will further clarify or change what you've just found. And so that's what I mean by a program of research. So it, it's continually, uh, it's just continually moving the needle. I guess you could say that in a way. Right. So, yeah. So studies build on each other. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. So let's, yeah, let's kind of pivot here because that gives us a good um, kind of building platform for what we're going to talk about. Let's talk about some of the neuroscientific studies that are based on what you've been describing so that we can take them and say, okay, you know what? There is some validity here starting with the idea of neuroplasticity. And I think that's definitely something that has been publicized quite a lot in mainstream media. I think a lot of people listening to the show will recognize that term. Yes. What, do, what do we mean first off by neuroplasticity? What do, how would we define that? What would be a definition? Then? So um, a simple definition is that it's the ability of the brain to rewire itself based on experience. That's a very good one. That's a good one. So I guess, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, neuroplasticity is happening all the time, you know, because we are engaging in new experiences typically every day. So we creating, you know, neuroplasticity is taking place, but I'm assuming that where most people are um, 
you know, where they're motivated to learn more about it or to understand it is because they want to make changes in their lives with things that they are unhappy with. And so they're hoping that if they can quote unquote, you know, rewire their brain, so to speak, that that's going to change those negative experiences that they're trying to move away from. Exactly. The brain is continually uh, rewiring itself based on experience. And it starts, it starts in the womb, right? Where, um, yeah, so it's continually, uh, it's continually rewiring itself. And so that's why you need to be careful about what you do habitually. Right? Because things that you do habitually create strong connections in the brain. And that's one reason why habits are hard to change. Because if, if you've had a longstanding habit, um, the, it, it's taken up so much brain real estate and the connections are so strong that it's hard to change. So it's easier to start a new habit than try and change a habit that you already have. Right. So, I mean, an, an example is I remember uh, one time I would drive my kids to school uh, in the morning and on this Saturday morning, I just got into my car and I ended up at school without thinking. I mean, that was the way, I mean, I did that every day. And so that was just a normal thing to do. Right. And then it was only when I got there that I realized, but that's not where I wanted to go at all. So then, you know, listening to what you said there, I mean, that's an example of being an autopilot, right? So you, you got in the car and then you landed up to where you wanted to be. So I guess in a similar sense, you know, when we talk about habits that we have that we don't necessarily enjoy about ourselves, a lot of times we're an autopilot. So most people are not taking the time to actually stop, look at it, look at it properly and say, okay, I don't like this behavior. That's the first thing you need to have some level of awareness. And then from there, you need to put in some concrete action in order to change that. And just, I think, I guess for a lot of people, they just think it's just a question of changing their mind, but it isn't that easy if we understand neuroplasticity because that behavior, that habit has been developed, as you noted, could be over an entire lifetime for some people. And now suddenly you want to change it. It isn't going to be that easy to do that. No, there are certain conditions um, that create neuroplastic change, and, and, and they come from, from research. I mean, years. Uh, neuroplasticity has been studied for many years now. And so there, you need to have a goal. And so it's not just enough to have an intention. You really need to have a goal. And you have to put the effort into the learning, into the practice. And if it's, if it's easy to do, your brain's already been wired for that, right? And you need to repeat it over a period of time. And how long depends on what you're trying to do. So for example, learning how to juggle, they've already shown uh, changes in brain wiring after three months. Uh, but if you wanna do something more uh, harder, I don't know, like change an emotional reaction that, uh, that you have um, or change some eating habits, it can take longer than that. There's no hard and fast rule. And then the other, the last thing is, is that if you stop doing it, if you stop practice, the brain changes will reverse. So what I heard you say there, which is really important, you were just talking about juggling and three months just to kind of get anywhere with it, right? So what that says to me and what I know, of course, is that there are no shortcuts here. And I think that's the other thing that I notice a lot, especially in the self-help industry, is that this, presum this presumption that is there's going to be a shortcut to success, that you, know, you don't need to actually put in the hard work. But what you're suggesting is it's going to take work, right? It's going to take 
behavior change and it's going to and it's going to have to be consistent behavior change over time yeah exactly i um, and so the the three months of juggling it doesn't mean that you can't get proficient sooner than that it's that the study measured them after three months and they found and they found brain changes right so you could get proficient earlier uh, there might be brain changes before that but it really depends on the difficulty of what you're trying to do yeah because i mean i know for myself and my own kind of journey um, as an adult i i had a lot of trauma when i was a child growing up and that stayed with me for a very long time. And I mean, if I'm really honest with myself, those were the most difficult things to overcome. It really took you know, a lot of intense introspection, a lot of behavior change, a lot of work to really see a difference. And so for me, I've always had that realization, especially when I started reading around neuroplasticity, I realized just how ingrained some of these experiences can become and how difficult they can be to actually make the change that you want to. So it's not an easy process, I think. No, and change, and, and change happens in the doing, right? Not in the thinking about. So uh, yeah, what's really popular now are like, oh, I just have to have the right, right mindset and everything will, will change. Well, no, it won't. You have to practice that new mindset. I love that because that when you said that, I was my head went to the secret. I'm sure you know about that. You know, it's just like, you know, just you know, if you can, if you can see it in your mind and you believe it in your mind, then it will manifest. Right. But I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Right. Because if anybody who's ever achieved success in anything, and I'm mostly known in the world um, of martial arts and I've had a very good career there, it, it wouldn't matter how much I sat and I thought about it until I got off the couch and actually engaged in the experience and the practice that was the only way I was going to get any better at it. I mean, no amount of trying to, you know, visualize was going to make any difference. Not to say that there isn't benefit in visualization, but because we'll get to that later, but definitely, you know, you have to take the action as you know. Always. You have to take the action and it has to be consistent. You have to practice it if you really want to create um, a brain change. Mm -hmm. And actually all behavior change is brain change. If you're successful in, in changing a behavior, then you've successfully created neuroplastic change. That's, that's very powerful. I love that. Irina, let's talk about multitasking. So I think this is something that's very typical when we talk about people, especially in everyday life, in the corporate world, for example, everybody's really busy. They think that they're multitasking, that they're getting multiple things done at the same time and being efficient about it. But is that true? That's, that's not true at all. There's what, what they're doing instead is really fast task switching. And there's a cost. Every time you switch, to, uh, switch a task, there's a cost involved. So it's estimated that people who multitask can lose up to 40% of their day in that switch cost. Um, and it could, also, um, it could also damage employee relationships. So in the sense that if you're a leader and you have, and you have an open door policy, then you're constantly being interrupted from, uh, by people coming in and wanting to talk to you. Uh, and so there's the switch cost involved. And if you're still trying to continue to work while you're talking uh, to your staff, you're, you're trying to multitask. And what you're doing is really switching between the two. So there's a cost involved. And then there's a, an emotional cost to, uh, to your team members, right? Because you're not fully conscious of them. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were saying that I was just, my head went to something from my own research when I was doing my doctorate 
that came out and it was this idea of the importance of mindful communication. Exactly. I guess we can argue that if you're multitasking, then you are not being mindful of the communication and you're not really there with the person that's speaking to you because you're somewhere else. Exactly. So a, a better way than having an open door policy is having office hours where, where your office is open during those hours. So the takeaway really then is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if we're saying that multitasking doesn't really exist, the solution would be then to what? To concentrate on one task at a time as much as possible? Absolutely, to concentrate on one task at a time. Because every time you switch, you switch tasks, I mean, the, 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 the switch cost means that it takes you a while to get back into, into that frame of mind to continue what you were doing. And so if you can just focus on one task at a time, then you don't have that, right? You don't have that cost. Yeah, just as you were saying that, I was also just thinking about modern life and just how many distractions we have. And you see people doing that all the time, right? Is shifting and juggling between one device and another, you know, for example, like they have, they have the TV on at the same time when they're on their phone while they are trying to have a conversation. It just seems that, you know, people are so distracted and fragmented. And I think what you're saying there and, and what I like is that we should really take some time out to be with the people that are most important to us. And when we are taking that time out, rather than quote unquote multitasking, which we already discussed isn't really real, we should be really focused and mindful on the experience that we're having with each person. And also on the tasks that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? Because then you can have complete focus. Otherwise, your focus is fragmented. Mm. Right? So you, you, you're never going to gain that deep focus if, if your focus is constantly fragmented. And it's even worse with driving right? and, being on a, and being on a cell phone or a mobile, I guess, from where you are. Sure. Uh, it's, so it, it, it's not whether the phone is hands-free or not. Uh, anytime that you're on, on a cell phone, your, your, your focus or your attention is being shifted away from driving to the call. So it shifts from the parietal areas, which are the areas at the back of the brain, uh, the parietal and visual areas, which are for navigation and for visual processing, which is what you need for driving. And the attention and, and, and the, um, the activation shifts to the frontal areas, which are the high executive and uh, executive functioning type of areas. So concentrating on a task. So that's what's been shown to happen. And, and it, it happens whether you're hands-free or, or whether you are like, it, it's just the fact that you're on a cell phone. And so why doesn't that happen when you're with a passenger? Well, with a passenger, a passenger can see when the road is getting difficult and can stop speaking to let you navigate the road, to concentrate on the road. But uh, a, a partner, someone uh, on a phone is not gonna see that. And if you're driven behind someone who's on a cell phone, right, you can tell. Yeah, totally. That's very, very true. I mean, you, can, you know straight away. You can just see by how they're driving. They seem distracted and slightly chaotic and unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you shouldn't uh, be speaking on the phone at all, even if it's hands-free mm. on uh, while you're driving. I think that's, that, that's some important points that you made there. 
So building off that, building off this idea of multitasking as an illusion, this is a nice segue into motivation because I'm wondering as well, we can talk about motivation, but I'm wondering how motivation and this idea of people, quote unquote, multitasking, which is really just them jumping from one thing to the next plays into motivation. Because I guess most people are always seeking motivation to achieve a goal. And the kind of common thing that we hear all the time is people find it hard to motivate themselves. They lack motivation. So is there a connection at all between multitasking, this idea of multitasking and motivation? Well, um, one of the things about multitasking too, is if you're a big multitasker and you're multitasking all day, you end up feeling more anxious at the end of the day because you have accomplished less because you've just dabbled in a bunch of different things rather than really accomplishing one, even, even just one or two things. So, so that could be, that could be a reason, Mm. I guess, for motivation. No, I think that's a really good one. I mean, that makes a whole lot of sense because I just, when you were saying that I was putting myself in that place and we've all done it right where I've got a whole bunch of things to do. Um, I'm spreading myself really thin. I'm jumping from one thing to the next. And by the end of the day, that's exactly how I feel. I feel more anxious and I feel like I haven't really accomplished anything. And you look back and you go, wow, that was a waste of a day. And that I think will inevitably then impact your motivation when you have to come back to that work again, because you feel like you haven't been making any inroads. But the reason you haven't been making any inroads is because you've been jumping around so much. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons. And the other thing is that people's goals are too big. So, I mean, big goals, big goals are good, but you have to break down the goals into small tasks. Uh, and how small it, I mean, that's a personal decision. It all depends. You know, some people can uh, have bigger goal, bigger tasks. Other people need really tiny tasks. And the whole, the whole thing is that the task should be small enough so that you can succeed at them. Let, let, let you know when you start the task that you can be successful at it. That's how small it should be. And the reason for that is that increases dopamine, right? Which is that, that feel-good pleasure horm- uh, neurotransmitter in the brain. And the dopamine uh, stays in the brain long enough that it predicts your success on the next task. So if you were successful on, the first, on, on that initial task, then it'll increase your dopamine and then, you're, and then you can expect to be successful on the next task. And so ideally you can set up your day as a series of small tasks. And actually, if you start your morning, if you start your day with a small task, like with a success, it can set you up for an entire day. And, and I've taught this to my students um, I, I talk about it a lot and it's really amazing how it can set you up for, uh, for a day. And it's not something like, oh, getting up and making your bed or doing some meditation in the morning. It's really starting your work for the day and choosing a small task that, that's still important, but that you, can, that you can succeed at. I love that you said that because uh, it was quite a long time ago, a good few years ago, I was on a podcast myself and somebody was interviewing me and they were asking me about goal setting. Do I set goals? And that's exactly how I described it. You know, that was just my own personal experience coming from where I came from, which for the most of my life have been what we could consider a professional athlete and coach. And 
every time I've ever wanted to take something on and achieve something, I've always realized that you have to break it, break it into manageable, go manageable chunks, manageable goals, small little, like you said, small goals, work on those independently and then bring them all together at the end, right? And so I think a lot of times what people tend to do is they set these massive goals, as you said, but then they also have this expectation that they're just going to achieve it without kind of setting out a process of actually getting there. It's like the 11th hour syndrome, right? It's like, I, I want to be there before I've done all the work and not realizing that actually it's going to take all these small steps to get there. And I like that idea of as you achieve each one, it builds your, your confidence for the next one. And the reason, as you noted, is you're getting that little bit of a dopamine hit, which makes you feel good about it, which then motivates you to then go to the next step, right? And so before you know it, you've actually achieved your goal. And that seems to be, in my mind, the most practical way to actually achieve goals in the end. Yeah, exactly. And, and breaking it down to small tasks doesn't mean that you're achieving less. You're just breaking it. You're just doing it in smaller bits. So it's kind of like just a brain or a brain or mind trick. And you should, I mean, your big goals, you just keep them in the back of your mind. Right? They're, they're there. Like, you know, where, you know where you're headed in the back of your mind. Yeah. That, that's brilliant. No, I, I think that's excellent. So building off that then, if we talk about willpower, first of all, I guess a lot of people listening to this are going to say, well, what's really the difference between motivation and willpower? Are we not really talking about the same thing? I know we're not, but I think a lot of people would probably assume that, right? Because it sounds very similar. Willpower to get something done, motivation to get something done. Is it not the same thing? It is. I mean, it can be similar. So one thing I, I want to say one more thing, though, about motivation is that big, big goals require massive amounts of motivation, right? So you want to reduce the amount of motivation that you need. And, that, and, and, and so you break it down into small tasks. It reduces the amount of motivation you need. And so it reduces the amount of willpower. So willpower is about, um, is about force, trying to force yourself to do something that you're really not that keen on doing. And so there's the, the research on willpower uh, has a rocky past now because it there's there's a replication crisis in the the research on willpower and it's not seen anymore by scientists as a depleting resource right before it was seen as the more you use it uh you only have so much willpower and if you keep trying to and so willpower is about forcing yourself but pushing yourself to do something um that it would deplete and you would have less of it uh, later but the newest research shows that the people who have the most willpower are actually those who are hardly using it at all. And that's because they organize their environment to not have to use the willpower. And so there's a saying in coaching, right? The environment always wins. If your environment is not supportive of you winning, it's going to be harder to win. So, I mean, an example of if you, if you want to lose weight, so one of, the, one of the things is that you really need to avoid these snacks, right? These sugary and uh, salty foods. So what do you do if you have it in the house? For, I'm one of these people where it just keeps calling, right? And, and I have to eat it. And I will eat the whole bag of chips. I'll eat the whole box of cookies. 
if it's in the house. I mean, some people aren't like that. I have friends who can keep half a bag of chips around the house for days. Uh, but I'm not one of them. And so the thing is that you just don't buy it. If you just don't buy it, then yes, when you think about, geez, I'd like some chips, but I don't have any in the house. And to go out and get some is a, a next step, right? It takes more effort. And you can talk yourself out of it in the time that it takes you um, to mobilize yourself to go to the store. And the reason that works too is that if you just decide not to buy it, that's only one decision. But if you have it in the house, it's a constant decision and eventually you'll fail. Yeah, that's a really good point. I and mean, just when you were saying that if, if any of my, you know, my students, current and ex, are listening to the show, one of the sayings that I had all the time when I was teaching and still even to this day, I would always say that environment informs behavior. And that's really what you're speaking to, right? So is there anything else we should, we need to know about willpower? I mean, that's a great, that's a great suggestion, right? So, you know, don't put it, don't put it in the environment because if you, if you've got a problem with it, like you said, eating crisps, whatever that may be, and it's there, you're going to be fighting that all the time. Just take it out of the environment. Then it's no longer, you know, something that you have to think about. And if you do, you have to take extra steps, like you noted to go out and get it, which most people are going to go, Oh, that's just too much work. And, and, kind of you don't want to do it anyway yeah and 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 when it comes to work i mean you should organize your work environment right so if you're going to start on a task make sure that you have everything that you need so that you so you don't allow your mind to get to that point where oh now i have to look for uh for something or oh i have to look for an article right and which will um yeah <clears throat> and so th there's another thing too called temptation bundling and that is where you pair a, a task that you're not so keen on doing with something enjoyable. So um, let's say a classic example is going to the gym, right? Uh, if you go with a friend, then it can also be a social outing. And that really, that really does work. I mean, I've been doing Pilates now for five or six years. And in the same studio, it's small group, and these people have become my friends. And it's the first exercise program that I ever followed for any amount of time. And it's also because it's a social thing. So pivoting now into stress. Let's talk about stress, a big word. Everybody's always talking about this. Um, I think stress gets a bad rap, right? It's because it always seems when people talk about it, stress is negative, but it's not negative. I mean, stress is needed, actually, or at least in my experience, if I think about as a martial artist, and wanting to achieve success, you need to, at least in the way that I've always seen it, you need to change your relationship with that stress. Because if you change your relationship with the stress, in a positive way, then you're going to have a positive outcome and actually seeing it as the necessary energy that's required to achieve the goals that we've been talking about. Exactly. Exactly. If your goal is to eliminate stress, then you would just stay in bed all day. Right? I mean, that would be because you do need a certain amount of stress and, and cortisol levels to get you moving and accomplishing things. Yeah, because it, it's unfortunate, I guess, because what has happened is, and, and you know, you can probably speak to this better than I can, but I, I even noticed this like, just a little while ago on LinkedIn and was actually a psychologist and they were talking about emotions, for example. And they were basically implying that there are these positive emotions and then negative emotions. Now, at least my perspective on this is that I have a real problem with that because I don't like to label anything that is intrinsically part of the human experience of which emotions are. 
as both as a positive and a negative. Because I think all the things that we have within us, for example, stress, is required to have a full human experience. And when you start looking at things and you start saying, this is good, that is bad, then you start creating the separation that doesn't need to be there. I mean, even things like fear in the right context is going to be a positive experience that you need in order to achieve certain outcomes. And so I don't like this idea of labeling things like stress or certain emotions as negative. I mean, what's your take on that? No, I mean, it, it, it depends on what's really is whether it is, it works for you or it doesn't, whether it's appropriate in the circumstances or whether it's not. So stress can actually build resilience. Some stress builds resilience. If you have a stress-free life. Um, so, so for example, it's been shown, I mean, that children who, who don't have any stress in their lives don't grow up to be resilient as adults. And so uh, when, any, when anything uh, traumatic happens, they just fall apart completely and they can't, they can't get themselves back up. So a certain amount of stress, I mean, because it's impossible to have a completely stress-free life. It's just not possible, mm. right, to do that. So what, so, what's, so what should we do then? We should use that stress, right, and, and mobilize that stress to our advantage. Uh, sometimes we do need to do things to mitigate the effect of stress, especially if it's, uh, if it's, very, if it's very severe. But the other thing too is uh, we have to be careful the language that we use. Like we use the language that we use. I mean, we call everything stressful, right? <clears throat> and so stress is like shooting, calling everything stressful is like sh shooting a mouse with an elephant gun. Uh, but we should use different, more specific words. So last week, for example, there was uh, some road uh, repairs going on on my street. And, you know, it was drilling all day long. Like I could have said, okay, that's stressful, but I know better than that, right? It wasn't, it was annoying, yeah. right? And you see how annoying, annoying is temporary, whereas stressful is more pervasive, it has a more pervasive and permanent feel about it. So we have to be careful about that. Mm. I think, that's a I think that's a really important point. I think what people are doing is they're defining things incorrectly. So they're saying this is stress when in actual fact it isn't. And, I, and again, not to go off the, the, the track, so to speak, but people tend to do that with emotions as well, right? They, they tend to classify everything in black and white, but they don't see the nuances, the granularity of that, of that emotional experience, right? So when somebody says, you know, I'm really angry, is that really true? Because when you talk to them and you ask them to unpack it, they'll say, well, you know, actually, now that I think about it, I'm not really angry. I'm, I'm more irritated. But irritated isn't anger, right? No. And you, and you see how it just feels different, right? And, even, and you can feel it in your body, too, if you say, oh, this is just irritating. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, the, that's the, the thing that needs to be done, at least from my perspective. And what I've noticed is that, and I've, I've had to do that myself because... I came from a very traumatic experience growing up and I found myself just out of the survival state that I was in. The mechanism that I used was to label emotions in these extremes. And that dominated me for a very long time as an adult. And it wasn't until I did my own research and I know that you, you are a fan of Lisa Feldman Barrett 
and looked at her work and the ideas behind, you know, the constructed view of emotions and the idea of emotional granularity that I started to really just focus in on saying, okay, if I'm, if I'm feeling a certain way and I label it as whatever it is, is that label accurate? You know, and so just kind of having that conversation with me became really important in helping me heal my emotional trauma. And I would say the same thing with stress because I was extremely stressed out as a kid. And so then I can find myself as an adult just kind of going into the spiral really quickly in situations that really don't require that kind of, you know, emotional experience. And I don't need to be there, but that took me a long time to kind of figure out. And it, I think it's important for people to understand that and, and again, to do their own, their own research. Yeah. And we can also take it and we should also take it back down to our physical response. Uh, because our physical response, and we, we've learned that a certain set of physical responses uh, means a certain emotion, right? And so that's been learned from childhood, but that's not necessarily so, right? You, you could bring it back down to your physical response and then build it back up again as another emotion. So, you know, that racing heart and, and the shallow breathing um, doesn't always have to mean stress. It could, it could, you could build it up and it could mean something else. If it could mean that you're irritated, right? As we were just saying. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that all of the things we're talking about, you know, obviously this seems kind of what most people would expect us to talk about, especially if I'm talking to a cognitive neuroscientist, but diet and brain health, I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that those two are connected, that how much their diet is going to affect the way that they think. So that's something I think I'd like to explore with you as, as we go into this next section. It is, um, it is huge and people, people don't realize uh, how big it is. Uh, there's research, um, there, there's research with uh, the diets followed by, uh, by pregnant uh, mothers and then the effect on uh, behavior of their children. Uh, they're anxious, they're, uh, they're rebellious generally. And even as, as adults, I mean, there, there's great research with mice showing that if you just change, if you, um, if you switch the gut microbes from anxious mice to calm mice, the calm mice will become anxious and vice versa. And there's really good research showing that for, through diet alone, you can, you can resolve depression. That is amazing to me because just as you said that, like one of the things that I've struggled with in my own, and a lot of it comes back from, from my childhood. So there was a period there where I was struggling quite a lot with depression and one of the things that I noticed in hindsight was that I wasn't being very careful with my diet. And so I, one of the things that being in the situation that we all find ourselves in at the moment in lockdown has allowed me to do is really refocus, re-strategize on my diet. And I've been pretty good for the most part. And I felt a huge difference just in my moods and just, you know, just in my energy levels throughout the day. And so it's quite evident to me. It wasn't immediate that I started seeing the benefit, but it, you know, within a few months, within three months at least, I was seeing a difference. Now, 
that tells me straight off, you know, that that's kind of interesting. And, and actually one of my friends was suffering a lot from headaches constantly. And I suggested to him that he gets, uh, you know, live probiotics and, and take those. And that made a huge difference um, for his headache. So that's kind of interesting that you, that you note that about the, the gut and the, the brain connection. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can reduce anxiety. I mean, and it can, it can even act a lot faster than that. So I, I had a client who was, uh, who was a portfolio manager. So like a highly intelligent and educated and high functioning woman, but uh, her self-esteem was through the floor. And, but she was also eating a junk food diet. Like, I'm not saying the junk food diet caused it, but it was probably that she felt so bad that she was, uh, that she was medicating herself with the junk food. And I kept asking her to, uh, working on her to get rid of her junk food diet. And so one day she decided she was going to stop the junk food. And, you know, she called me three days later and said she can't believe that her brain fog is gone. So it can be really quick. Right. Of course, then we had to work on why she was medicating herself with junk food because she kept going back to it. But uh, that's how quickly um, things can change. One thing that I noticed is when you eat too much refined sugar, that definitely adds to your brain fog. Oh, yeah. And, and most, uh, most psychological disorders are accompanied by digestive uh, disorders also. They're, they're very related. And it's also important for your brain health as you age. Mm. It, is so, it is so important that, uh, you know, our brains naturally shrink as we age. But people who are eating unhealthy diets, their brains shrink faster. And in one study at around age 85, when they compared the diets of people who were eating very healthy diets compared to those who were eating very unhealthy diets, the difference was in cognitive functioning, functioning was seven and a half years. So for healthy aging, you, yeah, you need to follow a healthy diet. It's the usual, right? Um, eliminate sugar, eliminate processed foods, eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, uh, I'm, yeah, eat, and fish. And I'm a believer in good quality meat too, but... Mm. So would that be like more of a Mediterranean diet then? It's more, um, that, that's the one that's been studied the most, but it's really any whole foods, like ancestral type diet, you know? So there, I think there's good evidence for the Scandinavian diet. Right. So yeah, so you have to really eliminate the processed food and the sugar. And you have to cook at home. Yeah, we've been really good, like especially over the last several months, just making a point of trying to cook as much of our own food as possible. And then, of course, as you realize, you know exactly what's going into that, which is important. So building off that, Irina, obviously connected to diet is going to be things like exercise. And obviously exercise would have, a, if diet's going to have an effect on the brain, so is exercise. Exercise too. It's one of the... Exercise is kind of like a magic pill for uh, healthy aging. It's one of the most important things that you can do for healthy aging is exercise. And, that, and that's both cardio and uh, muscle. Okay. So what kind of exercise should people, should people be doing? I mean, because there's so much information out there. I mean, just as a baseline, you know, what would be the important things to do? You need to move. So it's not that you have to go to a gym all the time. Uh, dancing, for one. 
you know, if you like dancing, then dancing will, uh, is good exercise. Uh, walking is very good, but not strolling. Like you have to walk at a, at a bit of a pace, but something where you can still keep a conversation going several times a week and do some strength training. And in fact, our beliefs can affect that too. So there was, there was one study that looked at um, hotel uh, housekeepers, you know, the, the, the people who clean the rooms. And they believed that they, they didn't have time to go to the gym and they believed that they weren't getting any exercise at all. So the, the, they split the housekeeping staff into two groups and one group they just gave them general health information. And for the other group, they told they said specifically how their work was uh, positively affecting their health, right? Because it's a physical job, right? To make beds and vacuum and, uh, and all of that. And after the end, uh, at the end of the experiment, they found that for, for the ones who they had told that they were getting all this exercise, even their blood pressure had dropped. So it was about, it was about belief also. Yeah. So it, it's not necessarily that you have to go to the gym. Connected to that again, these are all connected in my mind, you know, the idea of diet, exercise, and then sleep. And I think this is where I really want to hear your insights into this. I can tell you my, my backstory on this is that I've struggled with sleeping for the longest time, partly because I have a lot of injuries from all the years of being, you know, a martial artist. But the other side of it is I, you know, I lived in Johannesburg all my life and it's one of the most violent places on the planet. And I found myself always kind of sleeping with one eye open. And now that I'm on the Isle of Man, I'm struggling to shake that, to be honest. And it's got better, but I still find myself being a really light sleeper and not actually being able to get into that deep sleep. And I'm very aware of how important your sleep is because if I don't get at least a relatively good night's sleep, the rest of the day is just a disaster. Yeah, sleep is really important. It consolidates memories um, at night. It does other cleaning of the brain while you're sleeping. Uh, people who don't get enough sleep uh, are angrier the next day. So it affects your emotional health. It really does affect your, it'll, it can, it'll affect your focus. One minute. Yeah. So sleep is super important. So we should be sleeping between seven and nine hours uh, a night. Um, most psychiatric disorders, so even something like depression and anxiety um, are, so they also have sleep disorders, so they're related, which comes first. You know, the jury is out <laughs> on which comes first, but, but if you can improve your sleep, you're going to improve those other, uh, those other symptoms. They, you're, you are going to have probably less anxiety and you probably will have less depression if you can improve your sleep. Yeah, so what would be some of the key things that people should try to do when they try to get a good night's sleep? I mean, I think for sure, definitely the one thing that most people struggle with is an overactive mind. So here I could see where the practice of mindfulness might become something that's quite important, being able to just you know be with what's happening without actually judging the mind and what's going on. Would you say that that's one of the things that people could do? 
So I think any, any of the stress reduction techniques would help, right? There's cognitive behavioral therapy also that you can do for that. Um, I use a sleep app because I, I too sometimes uh, have trouble uh, sleeping or I'll wake up in the middle of the night and have trouble going back to sleep. Um, so I use the sleep app and what the sleep app has some like soothing music and I choose that and it also has stories. <laughs> so I listen to these bedtime, uh, these bedtime stories and, and I, I only have three that I really like. And so it's, it's always one of the three, but what it does is it takes my mind out of my own internal thoughts, right? Which the worrying thoughts, which is what keeps me awake and, and gets me to focus on the story, even though, uh, for the longest time, I mean, I was listening to a story and I never knew how it ended <laughs> because I'd fall asleep. Now I know how they end, but there are still details uh, that, I, that I've missed in that eye. So that, something like that can help. Um, like I'm not, I'm not a sleep expert. I just know really how, how negatively it can affect uh, your brain. And there's even some, it's important for aging, for healthy aging too. Yeah. And going back to diet, actually, one thing that I wanted to say, too, is that dementia is also called type 3 diabetes. So that's why it's important to eliminate the sugar and uh, the white carb foods as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, I mean, I've been doing that and I've seen a huge difference And talking about sleep listening to something to kind of get your mind to go somewhere else might sound kind of weird for people when they hear this, but there's, there's a really cool playlist on Spotify and it's, it's whale sounds. And that just does it for me. Like just putting those whale so sounds in the, in the distance, that's just something that gets me to kind of shift that my mind off myself somewhere else. And has definitely helped me get, get into some sleep, which is really cool. Yeah, so whatever can shift your mind away from your worrying thoughts into something else is helpful. And, and also, if you really can't do it, I mean, because there are sometimes even the story doesn't help, um, you just get up and you do something else. So, uh, for example, I'll get up and watch TV for half an hour just to, just to get my mind out of that circle of thoughts of negative thoughts and then you can go back and listen to your sleep app. I mean, I'm not a sleep expert, so these are just some ideas, but cognitive behavioral therapy uh, and, and there are some online programs. Oh, and one other thing that, that I really wanted to mention is so last week, um, a colleague and I presented to this mastermind that we're, we're members of, and we presented on lifestyle choices, brain health, and productivity. There were very few men who attended. It was mostly the women. And we were wondering why. And what comes across my desk the other day or, or in one of my news feeds, men, it's a question of masculinity. Men who sleep less, yeah, or feel that they're more masculine. And, and, and it's, uh, and, and it's, uh, they both feel that themselves and others feel that about men who sleep too much or less, are less, uh, less masculine. So it's fascinating that you say that because I'm not going to mention names, but this is perpetuated. It is perpetuated on LinkedIn and uh, 
Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are there is one specific person that I can think of that has a massive following who is always taking pictures of their, their watch at a certain time when they wake up, which is like literally before any normal person should wake up as a kind of like, you know, get out there, go get it. You know, the person who wakes up the earliest is the person, the early word, what's it? The early bird gets the, the gets the worm, right? Yeah. That kind of saying. And so that's definitely something that's put out there and it does very much kind of, and I've seen it. It's mostly guys that connect to that. Right? It's like, you've got to get up, you've got to get up early. You've got to get going early and like four 30 in the morning. So it's kind of interesting that you say that because I've definitely seen that, especially in the social media sphere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's damaging. I mean, it, it, it is true, I mean, that there are some genetic differences, right? So we generally do need seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Some, and, and genetically, some people might need less than that. And some might need very much less than that. But those would be very few. And then whether we're morning people or evening people is also, there's a huge genetic component to that also. So like I'm someone who, who gets up early. I usually wake up around 530 in the morning, but I also go to bed at 10. So I'm getting my seven hours. Uh, hopefully, if I sleep well through the night, I'm getting my seven hours. Um, so, so yeah, that's partly genetic. Mm, no, some good points. So two more things I wanted to talk to you about, Irina, is mm. insight and visualization. So talk to me about insight. Why is that even important? And then we can, we can explore visualization to end off our a conversation yeah insight insight is important it's because it it's creative right so if you're working on a problem and you can't seem to get um, to get a, an answer right you can't seem to work through it uh, and we've all experienced it where you just leave it and then you sleep on it and the next morning uh, it's it's like it's a, like a, a light bulb right you are you have your answer but you can you can do that more um, you could be more proactive about that. So it's important to have some downtime. So if we're constantly hampered, like if we just have huge to-do lists and we're constantly working on our to-do list, then you're not giving your brain that chance to mind wander or to relax. And that's really important for some, for creative, for creativity, for insight. So, yeah, so we should be putting in some downtime into our, into our day. So what I've found has been very um, productive for myself is that when I'm, you know, cause I work from, from home and if I'm trying to come up with a solution for something and I'm hitting a wall, hitting a wall, not getting anywhere, I will go out and I'm, I'm lucky I'm in a beautiful place, the Isle of Man, which has got some amazing places to walk around and woodlands and whatever else. The coast is right here. We've got tons of stuff. Um, that's the best thing is just go out, you know, just put it, behind me, you know, the back of my mind, I know it's there, but I'm going to focus on the walk and nine times out of 10 coming out of that walk, suddenly it's like a light bulb moment. And I, I get that flash of inspiration that I've been looking for. Yeah. Or like when I was, when I was writing my dissertation and you know how it goes, like you, you write and then, and then you, you get stuck right in a certain, a certain thing. And, and if, it, if I couldn't work through it, um, I would work on my stats, on my statistics. I find I'm a math person, so I find that easy and I find that it can be mindless, right? And wouldn't you know, if I'd all, uh, as I was working on the stats, I'd get a flash 
and I'd get my answer for this problem that I had been stuck on for a while. Yeah. So it doesn't mean just sitting there and mind wandering. It really, it, it could also mean switching to, uh, to some task that doesn't require that focus. Oh, that's important. So I, I guess building into insight, the idea of visualization. So one of the problems that I see with visualization is it's kind of, I don't know if you're aware of that idea of the secret. <laughs> You know, it's this, this idea where you just, you know, just believe, you know, just have it in your mind, see it in your mind, believe it and it'll manifest. The problem with that is, is that that's not how the world works, is that anything that you want to achieve requires action. So it's not to say that visualizing isn't important, but visualization without action, in my experience, is meaningless. Wishful thinking. Um, yeah, it's magical thinking. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, exactly. And rather than, so if we want to visualize, I mean, I'm not a person who visualizes, it just never worked uh, for me. But if you want to visualize, don't visualize uh, having like standing on the podium of success, right? That finally I've achieved and this is what it feels like, because I see a lot of that, right? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? Well, when you do just that, what happens is that you uh, have a, a drop in energy, right? And this has been measured using systolic blood pressure, right? So you have a drop in energy because your brain, for your brain, you've already achieved it. So you have that drop in energy. And if you look at athletes, when they do visualization, they don't visualize standing on the podium at the end. They visualize running the race, right? They visualize the steps that they're taking to run the race. So that's exactly how we should visualize if we want to visualize, visualize the steps that we need to take to get to our goal. Also plan for obstacles, right? So it's, it, it's the same way with, uh, if you're, if you want to be on, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, plan for obstacles. So, What's going to happen? What are you going to do if you go to this party and there's all this food that's available? Right? Um, so plan for obstacles is, is really important too. Yeah, when I hear you say that, that's very stoic, stoicism, you know, kind of envision the worst case scenario, which is, you know, you know the stoics are doing it, you know, back in the day. And now, you know, it comes to fruition that that's actually a really good thing to do. Well, yeah, there, there, there are always going to be obstacles to any goal. <clears throat> it, never runs, it never runs smoothly. As we come to the end, Irina, if you have to leave us with some words of wisdom, what would you want everybody to go away with? You don't need to make things hard on yourself, right? By, by forcing, by using willpower, right? You can make things easier on yourself by organizing your environment. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.